welcome to the Riverside Church Podcast. Riverside Church is a community of believers striving side-by-side for the gospel in the greater New Orleans area. For more information about Riverside Church, go to riversidelife.org. Where we are this morning, we're looking at that entire chapter. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 12 uh, this morning. If you follow the greatest men of God back to their beginnings, you'll often find in a hidden closet or in a pew a mother kneeling to pray. If you look behind Augustine, you will find Monica. If you look behind Spurgeon, you will find Eliza. If you look behind Hudson Taylor, he speaks of his mother Amelia. And look at each of these mothers and you will find women of earnest prayer. In the prayers of mothers, one writer writes, awakenings are born and and peoples are won, idols are toppled and devils are undone and dry bones are raised and prodigals are rescued as a result of mothers' prayers. And not only people and individual and sons and daughters, but Powerful churches can be traced back to prayers. I love how John Piper writes. He says, prayer, it's one of my, two of my favorite quotes on prayer. Here's the first one. Uh, Prayer is the coupling of primary and secondary causes. It is the splicing of our limp wire to the lightning bolt of heaven. How astonishing it is, he goes on to say, that God wills to do his work through people. And it is doubly astonishing that he ordains to fulfill his plans by being asked to do so by us. There is great power in the prayer of the church of God's people. My second favorite quote on prayer is from E.M. Bounds. He writes, you've heard me share this before. He says this, when we depend upon organizations, we get what organizations can do. When we depend upon education, we get what education can do. When we depend upon man, we get what man can do. But when we depend upon prayer, we get what God can do. If we've seen anything in Acts so far, we have seen the work of the Holy Spirit, and we've seen the the work of the Holy Spirit, particularly in a praying church, as people hook their powerless wires to the lightning bolt of heaven and see the power of God manifest in their midst by the power of the Holy Spirit. The people in Acts, the church in Acts, they depend upon prayer, and they get what God can do. Acts chapter 12 tells us the same thing. We see a praying church yet again. And so we're going to follow that story this morning and see what truths we might be able to glean from it as we see this praying church. And many of us can testify that even a praying church is not a trouble-free church. Even a, a praying mother is, is not a mother who does not experience trouble uh, in the home or, or the workplace or whatever it may be. A praying Christian is, is not a Christian without troubles. And a praying church, we see in Acts chapter 12, is not a church without trouble. So the first thing that I want to point out to you this morning in Acts chapter 12, 1 through 4, is that the people of God are persecuted. The people of God are persecuted. Persecution is inevitable. After all, we are loyal to a king that is not of this world. We are loyal to the king of kings and the lord of lords who is king over every kingdom, whose, whose kingdom is the only kingdom who will not shake down in the end. The only king that will be standing in the end is King Jesus, and we follow him, and he is our lord. And Jesus told us, in this world. 
Not you might have trouble. You will have trouble in this world. Because this world is broken. And people don't like people following a king that is above every name. History is filled with people thinking if they could only silence Christians. People, the history is filled with, with kings thinking if they can silence the Christians, and, then they will finally have the rule and reign that they've always desired. The people of God have been persecuted throughout the centuries. And here we see the people of God are persecuted, and they're persecuted particularly by a king named Herod. We see it in chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, as the church is expanding in Antioch and, and, the, and, the, and, the people, and the gospel is spreading throughout Gentile territory, we see that at that time, Herod, you see it in verse 1, the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. This Herod is Herod Agrippa I. He was the grandson of Herod the Great uh, that you hear about in the birth narratives of Jesus. This this family was not very well liked at all. In fact, this Herod Agrippa that we read about here in Acts chapter 12 uh, spent much of his growing up time in, in Rome. He, they, they, they put him in Rome to find some asylum for some time so no one would take his life. He was sent to Rome when Herod the Great was killed. Uh, some describe him as a playboy and heavily in debt during his time in Rome. To make a long story short about Herod Agrippa I, uh, the masses hated his family. He became, this Herod did, whatever he thought might bring him acceptance and accolades. There is nothing new under the sun. Have you ever seen a politician or a king who would say anything or become anything in order to have acceptance and accolades? Have you seen this? Still to this day, Kings and kingdoms rise up and they will do whatever they think will bring them the most acceptance and accolades. It was no different for King Herod Agrippa I. In Rome, he was a Roman. In Judea, we will see he was a good Jew. And this Herod, he is after the church. He realizes that if he takes out the leaders of the church, it would get him some accolades and there was nothing more Nothing that he liked more than accolades. Look at what it says here. He, he, got, he laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Look at verse 2. He killed James, one of the apostles, one of the first apostle to be killed. Remember James, the son of thunder, James and, and John. This is not James, the brother of Jesus, but James, the, the brother of John. He's, you remember he was the one that argued, uh, asked Jesus, uh, in the kingdom, can one of us sit on your right and one sit on the left? And and remember what Jesus told him, that uh, you will drink this same cup of suffering that I'm drinking. And he does. He killed James, Herod did, the brother of John with a sword. And listen to this. And when he saw it pleased the Jews, so he saw it. This is how I can get accolades and acceptance during this time of feast even when all these folks are in, in town. He proceeded also to arrest Peter. He starts to see someone. He kills James and he gets all of these accolades. He, he kills James, the son of thunder, this young and, and passionate follower of Christ that, that probably, he was not only a leader in the church, but he was likely a leader in the marketplace as well. He was a, he was a, um, he owned a, he was owned a fishing business, you remember. And James is killed with a sword and I'd imagine for the church, it felt like one of those moments where you think, man, at the prime of his life in his 30s, this, this, this businessman and this, 
passionate son of thunder, this follower of Christ, they took him out. And I imagine there were some questions from the church at this time, like, like, is God in control? Does he care? Does he have his providential hand over this situation? Because the way I see it, why didn't he stop this? It's a moment that can make us question the the wisdom of God. And we see this throughout church history that's really puzzling. There's some like even the reformers like John Huss who's burned at the stake. And then there's folks like Martin Luther that whose life is spared. He's able to propagate the good news of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And why did God take this one so quick and this one saw a long, fruitful life? I don't know. But Herod knew something. He, he knew he could get the accolades and further acceptance of the Jews. So he went after the big dog. If they liked it when I took out James, imagine if I can get Peter. The Lord said, on this rock I will build my church. If I can take Peter out, can you imagine the accolades and acceptance I would get? So he arrests Peter. But Herod, his own worst enemy, was desperate for acceptance. And so he puts Peter in prison during this time because it's the moment of Passover. And he doesn't want to lose the favor of the Jews and kill someone during, during Passover. So he puts them under maximum security. It was the days of unleavened bread. Look at verse 4. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering over into four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter is under maximum security. This is four soldiers guarding him at the time. Two would be chained to him and two would be standing outside the prison cell and they would be on constant watches rotating those fours, those fours throughout those uh, groups of four throughout the watch. So he wasn't going anywhere. He was well guarded. He was locked up. This tyrant had him. And it was Passover. I, I wonder, this is some sanctified imagination, right? We're, we're not told here, but it's during this time of Passover. During the time of Passover, people are reminded that God brought them out of captivity with a, with a, with a powerful and righteous right hand. He, he put to death Pharaoh's household, and he brings them out miraculously. He splits the Red Sea open and brings them out. I, I wonder if the people of God were thinking at this moment, does God still save Does God still rescue? Is God still saving people this very hour? Does God still deliver his people? So James is dead. Herod's in control. Peter is locked up. The people of God are being persecuted. Praying people are not people who are experiencing a perfect life. Often they're going through difficult times. But... The people of God are praying. Do you see it in verse 5? Don't miss this. Verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, as I described to you a second ago. But earnest prayer was made to God by the church. Here's what this wording here denotes. This earnest prayer that was made for him to God. The word that's being described here is a word of uh, is a medical term that they're stretching their their muscles to the limit. They're maxing out their muscles of of prayer. Is what's getting was being put across here. That they are earnest and they're desperate in prayer. And, and notice something else here that Luke is is doing for us. 
in verse 5, he's, he, here's what the language denotes. On one hand, Peter is in prison under this strong arm of Herod and these guards. That's what's on one hand. But on the other hand, the people of God are stretching their muscles of prayer to the limits. What's going to happen? The church of God is praying. They're stretching their prayer muscles to the limits. They meet this persecution with with a prayer meeting. In Mary's house, they are praying. That's their plan. And we see this throughout all Acts. Is they're going to gather and get on their knees and work the muscle of prayer. And this is so counterintuitive to my mind and your mind probably. Our individualistic mindset says, I can pray on my own, but they're together in prayer. Our craving for immediate results says, it doesn't do anything. Let's do something. Our work ethic says, why are we sitting around when we could be accomplishing something? We could be coming up with a plan to get them out of here. Never read this book, but Charles Spurgeon wrote a book called Only a Prayer Meeting and It was written to address the growing tendency in the late 19th century to regard corporate prayer meetings as something elitist and optional. Spurgeon would have none of it. He said every church should meet for prayer. And without prayer, the church dies. Prayer is not a signal of last resort, but a declaration of trust in the sovereignty and the providence of God. So they're praying together. And this is the power of the church. They're praying earnestly. Stretching that muscle. This is the same word earnestly that's used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me. A moment of anguish and prayer. There's probably some mothers this morning that, that feel that. Praying specifically for Peter in this case. So what's Peter doing? So the people of God are praying and let's see what Peter is up to. We know where he is. Look at verse 6. This I've thought about this a lot this week. Look at verse 6. Church is praying. And now when Herod was about to bring him out. Do you remember what Paul does in prison? Let let me stop there for a second. He sings. He kind of stays awake and he kind of stays engaged. Herod's about to bring him out. Understand what's going on. Peter doesn't get this option to like appeal to his attorney, right? And say, hey, dude, look. No big deal. At least a couple of years of appeal before they take your life. Like, you have time, Peter. Don't worry about it. That's not what's going on this day. Like Herod said, you're going to die. I'm going to take you out, and I'm going to kill you by the sword. That's going to happen the very next day. So you understand, I'm not sure how many days he's been in prison, but his time is up. There's no appeals. There's none of that. On that very night... Do you see this? I underlined this in my Bible. Peter was sleeping. Peter was sleeping. He was sleeping, bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. He was about to die. He was heavily guarded, and Peter was sleeping. And not only was he sleeping, but he... How many of you would sleep in a moment like that? I don't know that I would. Listen to how hard he's sleeping. Hey, parents, you ever have a, a tough time waking up your kids? Like you have to do that. I, I do this to my kids every once in a while. Like, like the earthquake thing. 
Like they're, they're sleeping, you flip the lights on in the, in the room and you say earthquake, you start shaking the bed. Anybody ever done that before? To rouse them up. That's Peter. Behold, look at verse 7. An angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. This is not like bright lights. This is like angelic light is shining in the cell. And then he had to strike Peter on the side. Like this is not like a little nudge like, honey, get up. This is like punch him in the like, Dude, get up. Like Peter is out, absolutely out. This angel struck him on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Peter was sleeping and he was sleeping hard. Peter was sleeping. He wasn't sleeping because his attorney was coming in the morning to get him out of that place. He wasn't sleeping because he knew how he would get out of that place. He wasn't sleeping because he had the key to the chains to get himself out. Peter was not in a good place, but Peter was sleeping. Some more sanctified imagination. I wonder if Peter was remembering that night on the Sea of Galilee when his master was sleeping. You remember that? The storm was raging around them like they were goners. And Jesus was sleeping there in the boat. And they went and woke him, Jesus sleeping. Why is he sleeping? He's he's tired, but it's more than that. And they said, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased And there was a calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and waters and they obey him? I wonder if Peter remembered that night where his master slept, yes, because he was tired, but his master slept because his master was sovereign. His master was the master of the wind, and Peter knows the master of the wind. So even in this moment, Peter sleeps. Just like his master sleeping in the storm. He knows his master sovereign. He is crucified, dead, resurrected, and he is coming again. His master sees him. He knows him. He loves Peter, and he knows that. But Peter is secure, I believe, in the sovereign God. And Peter is sleeping hard on the pillow of God's promises. Peter is sleeping, but God is working. God wakes up. Peter and leads him out and the angel said dress yourself and put on your sandals and he did so and he said to him wrap your cloak around your sandals and he did so excuse me he follow me verse 9 catching up with myself here look at verse 9 and he went out and followed him and he did not know what was being done by the angel was real and he thought he was seeing a vision he's seen visions before maybe this is another one of those and when they had passed the first and the, and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord. Does God still miraculously lead his people out? Yes. Yes. And when Peter came to himself, he said, underline, this is, this is meant to be a little humorous. Understand what Peter's been through. Chains fall off, light on, angel struck him, gate open on its own accord. Verse 11, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod. Just now you're sure of that? It takes us a while, doesn't it? And from all that the Jewish people were 
expecting. God is working and we can identify with Peter here because sometimes we don't see the providential hand of God even when it's, it's obvious and we get two, three, four, five years down the road like, oh, now I know God is working, missing his hand all along the way. You're in good company if, if you struggle with that. Sometimes it's the tyranny of the urgent that overwhelms us. But God is at work even when we don't see it, even when it takes us a while to get going and figure it out. But Peter starts to recognize it. And so, so what, is, what does Peter do? He, he goes to Mary's house. He realized this. He went to the house of Mary, and the church is surprised. And why did he go to Mary's house? And she was the mother of John Mark, related to Barnabas. Mary was wealthy, the fact that she had a gate and lived in a house like this. Some spec, this is all speculation. Some speculate that this was the place of the Last Supper, the place where the Spirit came at Pentecost, and perhaps it was the operation center of the apostles. That here, this is where they did a lot of their gathering. And it, and it seems like that because Peter knew that. He's released from prison. Where do I, I go to Mary's house and I know I'll find the believers there. And so he goes to Mary's house, the, not the Mary mother of Jesus, but the mother of John Mark. Then many were gathered and they were praying just as we heard about in verse 5. And he knocked the door of the gateway, and a servant girl named Rhoda came and answered, and she recognized Peter's voice. So Peter had been there before. She, she knew his voice. And in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And so she's so overwhelmed with joy, she forgets to let him in. I don't know if the chains are still hooked to him, or we know he's released him from the chains, but, but he's in club cover, he's in cloak, and, and they're after him, and he's still sitting at the door knocking, let me in, they're after me. And so they said, as she went back and reported to the prayer meeting, you're out of your minds. But she kept insisting that this was so. And so they decided to start debating what this might be. Certainly, it's not an answer to our prayer. It's an angel. Maybe they're having theological discussions. Could this be an angel? To, uh, is this Peter that's, that's been killed and now he's shown up as an angel? It's, it's his angel that's here. Surely he didn't answer our prayers. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to him with his hands to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and the brothers. And then he departed and went to the other place. Peter was surprised that God was working. The church was surprised that God was working. But God was working at this prayer meeting. And then Peter departs and goes. Herod responds. He came and there was a great disturbance. There was no little disturbance among the soldiers, verse 18, of what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. That's what happened. You let the prisoner go, you die. And then he went down to Judea, to Caesarea, and spent some time there. There's a great commotion he kills the guards. He gets out of there, heads down to Caesarea. Herod responds to the situation. And the Lord responds to Herod. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, and they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on a appointed day, Herod put on the royal robes of suns beaming down. He, he looks royal. He took him his seat on the throne and delivered an oration to them. 
And the people were shouting the voice of a God and not a man, just what Herod wanted. Maybe he didn't get Peter, but he got what he wanted. He got all the accolades that he desired. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and was eaten by worms and breathed his last. God was in control. He did not have a blind eye to this one who was seeking to to take out his people. And the, saint, and the angel of the Lord that struck him down, the angel that struck Peter to wake him up and bring out his deliverance, struck Herod down, the wording there, not to deliver him, but to take him out. Our God is not mocked by rulers. The people prayed and God responded and worked through the prayers of his people. And the word of God increased and multiplied. The church kept moving forward. In all of this, you can probably think of application left and right as we worked our way through this passage. But in all of this, I I believe we see the providential hand of God, what theologians call the providence of God. That the word of the Lord triumphs, that there's nothing that God does not see. And that you cannot oppress God's people and not be seen by God. Jesus says, fear not, little flock. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The providence of God means he he sees and he knows and he acts for his glory and our good. He's working all things together for good. At the beginning of this story, it did not seem good with James going down and Peter in prison. But God doesn't always work on our timing, but God is working all things together for good. Here's how the Heidelberger, Heidelberger, Heidelberg, I don't know why I say burger every time I say that. The Heidel, you can laugh at that. The Heidelberg uh, Catechism says this of providence. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he upholds heaven and earth with all creatures. And he governs them. Herod's not the governor here. God is the governor. That herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Here's what the providence of God means. It means that God sees us. He saw his church. It means, and he sees you, it means God is for us. He's not against us. Even when the, the ways of the, even when people like Herod are against the church, the better king of kings, the only king of kings, the Lord of lords is for you, not against you. It means the God of heaven hears. He heard the earnest prayer as they stretched their muscles of prayer. And it means the Lord is always at work, even if it takes us a while to see it. And even if we don't believe it when it's right before our very eyes. The Lord is always working in individuals. He's working among the church. He's working among the nations. He's working among your family. Even on the national level, God is not turning a blind eye to all you see. God in his providence is at work. And often it's not just one thing at a time. He's working all sorts of things together for good. So there's things we don't see, there's things we don't know, there's things we don't understand. We may walk through persecution, but we can trust the providence of God and we can do so through prayer. So pray with everything you've got. 
and rest. Like the one you're praying to hears you. He sees you. He's for you. He's in his providence. He's working all things together for good. Pray and, and rest like the one who loves you owns the place. Because he does. Even the winds and seas obey him. And when you see what he's doing, it may take a bit. But when you see what he's doing, don't resist, but get on board and be about your father's work. Let's pray.